Hello, I'm Dr. Ruth Schmidt-Nevin, clinical psychologist and child psychotherapist. Welcome to Talking Child Development, the podcast of the Association of Child and Family Development in Melbourne, Australia. The association is a not-for-profit organization that aims to disseminate information about all aspects of child and family development to other professionals and to the wider community. In these podcasts, we will be going a little deeper into the whys and wherefores of child, adolescent and family life. We aim to get away from a focus that's purely behavioural and quick fix based to delve more deeply into issues and ask questions about why things happen the way they do. You can find more information on our website at www.acfd.com.au where you will also be able to access all the references mentioned here. Today, we have a special podcast devoted to the impact on children and their parents who are caught up in the family court system. I'm delighted to welcome Professor Catherine Lumby, who together with Camilla Nelson has co-authored a blistering account of this experience in their book called Broken, Children, Parents and Family Courts, published in 2021. Catherine is a professor of media at the University of Sydney, where she studied law. She has authored eight books and is a journalist who has worked with Guardian Australia, the Sydney Morning Herald and the ABC. Welcome, Catherine. I'd like to start by asking how you and Camilla Nelson came to write this book. Well, thank you, Ruth, and may I begin by congratulating you on this podcast series. And um, I said to you before that I very much support the work work of your organisation. It's very important. And thanks for inviting me on. So Camilla and I um, knew each other both professionally and socially for a long time, and she came to me and said, I'm writing this book on the family court, and I know that you've done a lot of work um, over a number of decades doing research with young people and uh, children not so much because there are ethical, strict ethical rules in universities. People get very nervous about you speaking to children, but really teenagers. Um, Exploring their voices, asking them about what they think about issues that um, people often speak on their behalf in relation to, for instance, their media consumption patterns, Uh, I've done work around what they think of sex education, the kind of sex education they get in high schools, and also work on how they form their identities and um, their sense of self and their sense of others. Uh, And so with that historical interest, um, Camilla said she wanted the focus of the book very much to be on what happens to children and why they're not listened to, and that's a topic of deep interest to me. Absolutely, yes. Now, your investigation with uh, Camilla Nelson, I understand, is based on the analysis of actual court documents. It gives a harrowing account of the suffering, mainly of women and children, at the hands of the family court system and culture. But before we start, there are two aspects I'd just like to clarify for our discussion. Um, The first is that we need to be aware that the family court has now merged with the Federal Circuit Court and is renamed the Federal Circuit Court and Family Court of Australia. What are the implications of this merger? Because I recall that concerns were expressed about losing the specialist expertise that had resided in the Family Court. 
Yes. Well, when we go back to the origins of the family court, and we can thank, I say tongue-in-cheek, St Lionel Murphy, of whom I was a big fan at law school, a very progressive judge, um, who really um, conceived of the family court uh, in an era when um, divorce was still shameful, difficult, and people had to uh, assign blame in order to get a divorce, which was a terrible kind of situation for people to be in. Uh, who were just in, in an unhappy marriage and wanted to separate, as sometimes happens. Um, so that was where it started, and it really was a very idealistic vision. Uh, however, we saw sig significant um, changes under the Howard government in the 90s, um, and the Federal Magistrates Court was established in 1999, and that was a part of an, a Howard government initiative. Um, and in 2021, the Federal Circuit Court, which was what the Federal Magistrates Court became, merged with the Family Court of Australia. Now, that all sounds like a lot of legal waffle, but it's very important because from the get-go, from the outset, the Family Court was not just a court, it was very political because there were a lot of people who were against no-fault divorce, who... Um, you know, and there still are people who feel that way, who felt it was a way of dismantling the family and dismantling male authority within the family. Um, and so we've always got to think about the family court and the federal circuit and family court as it is now in the context of broader political debates about the family, about women and children. And Camilla Nelson wrote um, the section on this new court um, in the book and I must point out that Camilla Nelson is the primary author of this book. Uh, that's very important for people to know. And what she said is that in establishing the new court, originally the Federal Magistrates Court, which is now fully formed in the merger of the Federal Circuit and the Family Court, um, Howard imposed on family law a technocratic, financially rationalised form of justice. The court took on a much greater proportion, this is the original Federal Magistrates Court, took on a much greater proportion of family court cases than it began to. And the approach of the court, uh, a number of researchers have, have studied it and talked to lawyers who um, work within the court system, it's been characterised as rapid and hectic. It's a sort of, it's very much focused on settlement, not on negotiation um, or mediation. And according to one lawyer who was quoted in the study, it's a zoo in which everyone struggles to understand what is going on because there's so many people, it's so noisy and it's so confusing. Now, that's not to say that some of the judges are not doing their utter best. I'm sure many of them are very well-intentioned. But we're talking about a family law system now that is very much under-resourced, that is bursting at the seams, with the cases that it does deal with, and where some judges will lack specialist skills, which the family court was originally conceived as of, of as having judges with specialist skills, you know. So we we're not people will not necessarily come before a ju judge who is trauma informed, who has a deeper understanding of the, the the cases that often come before judges, which involve potentially domestic violence or child sexual abuse. And as you would know in your own professional expertise, these areas are ones that really um, demand specialist understanding. 
Absolutely. I mean, would it be reasonable to say that given some of the changes in the in the 1980s, that that also included the deregulation of the legal profession, mm-hmm. which means that legal firms can actually deploy fairly aggressive marketing strategies and they and then there's no cap necessarily on legal fees. I, I don't know if I've got that right. So they can move towards very much a marketing business model, um, which is rather different, I think, from the medical allied health model, um, mm. you know, which is governed by the uh, Australian Health, health Professionals Reg- uh, Regulation Association. Mm. So there is a limit to what can be charged. But they, you know, I don't know if I'm being unfair or unreasonable to say that there appears to be no limit to what can be charged within the mm. legal um, world. Well, to give your listeners some context, when I did law, I did an arts law degree at the University of Sydney, and um, the law degree I did was very black letter, which means um, pretty conservative (laughs) and um, did not ask socio-legal questions or or social justice was not sort of anything that we ever looked at, even though it was really my passion, human rights law. And... um, we didn't study family law. It was regarded actually as something that women might go into when they finish their law degree because it was seen as very lower rung and um, where where you went if you really wanted to make it in the legal profession was mergers and acquisitions or corporate law. Now, right around the time I graduated in 1988 from law school, I've just carbon dated myself, um, <laughs> but that's okay, Uh that is right around the time that we saw rapid deregulation. And I can remember it because corporate law, law firms started to um, do far more than law. They started to hand out all sorts of advice. You might call it akin to public relations or management advice to clients. They diversified, as accounting firms have done as well. And it was an era then in which um, market forces began to dominate and the old, I guess, public what, what would you call it? I mean, it was very much a sense that the legal profession was a noble profession and that they had an obligation to people. That um, It was a bit elitist, of course, but it was not a highly commercial model. That all shifted. And as that shifted, what we saw was that family law um, became quite lucrative for some firms and practitioners. So one of the things that Camilla notes in the book is Australia's most litigious family court registries are on the eastern seaboard and geographically you can map the urban postcodes against where the biggest money is and that's where most of the litigation is. Now, not all lawyers act unethically, of course, but enough do to give rise to a slang term in the legal profession called burning off, whereby one party with more financial resources engages in protracted litigation designed to exhaust the emotional and financial resources of the other. Um, And incessant litigation, Ruth, will not only be felt by that partner or parent, it will be felt by everyone on the waiting list of the court. So, um, and there's no question that there is good evidence that some people, and it's usually a man, uh, engage in what is a form of coercive control in my view. It is litigation as abuse uh, and control. Um, Now, there is some accountability in the legal profession, 
Um, in different states, it's slightly different, but it's the same kind of structure. The Office of the Legal Services Commissioner in New South Wales, for instance, works with the Law Society of New South Wales. So if you think you're being overcharged or underserviced or that there's been some other form of professional misconduct, you can make a complaint and solicitors can be struck off. But that presumes a level of agency and knowledge and the resource amount of documentation an exhausted parent may have to provide at the end of a long working day, um, sometimes sole parenting children. So I think, you know, it's, it, it sounds fab fabulous if you go to their website, but in fact I think a lot of people may not have the cultural capital knowledge or agency to access those resources. So it's really about um, who has the resources, who has the capacity. It's It's got a sort of discriminatory element to it. Now, your book throws up some shocking examples of the suffering experienced by children when their parents go to war with respect to access or other arrangements. Um, as a child psychotherapist, I've been involved in some of these cases where the legal, in the legal context, the voice of the child is not allowed to be heard and the actual evidence of their life experience is ruled to be not only inadmissible by lawyers, but also as having no validity in its own right. How has this come about when in the original Family Law Act, the best interests of the child were deemed to be paramount? Mm. Wow, that's a big and very important question. If I can sort of draw, draw the camera back a bit, as it were, and just give a bit of a framing, because this goes right to the heart of my concerns about Children, I mean, I often think as a feminist that you know, women have fought for enfranchisement, fought for, to be, for our voices to be heard and understood. And I, I think children are kind of like the new women. They're not enfranchised. And there is, in some circles, um, I think a very paternalistic or even maternalistic view of children. So I think... The court is always situated in a social and political context. Um, and, I mean, when we think about children in Australia, the, the age of criminal liability generally is 10, which is very young, and the age of criminal responsibility is 14. Uh, so, um, and the age of sexual consent is 16. So when we start to think about where do we think childhood finishes and adulthood begins, we get a very variegated view of who is a child. Um, and yet at family court, you could have a 14-year-old who's not allowed to speak on their own behalf but can be held responsible for a crime and basically sent to juvenile detention, which seems very absurd to me. So that's the, the broader context. Yes, it is absolutely absurd that, that a 10-year-old can be put into detention and be seen to be liable for a crime. And yet the same 10-year-old, as you say, is not going to be listened to and and there's going to be no sense that their, their own experience is valid. So there's an extraordinary confusion around childhood and and um, it's it's extremely concerning. And, and, and you, sorry, Ruth, I didn't mean to interrupt. Yes. You go on. No, no, do, do, get, do carry on. Thank you. So what I was going to say, I alluded to the fact that family law is deeply politicised, but I think childhood is deeply politicised. I think this is my view from my research and others may disagree, but I think sometimes 
discourses of protection are really masking discourses of control. I think often adults are very, some adults can be very invested in controlling children. <laughs> I mean, because as a parent myself, sometimes children tell you unpleasant or inconvenient truths. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I, th I think that there, there's still um, a view in some that um, children are akin to almost property, but certainly it's in their interest to be controlled and spoken on behalf of. And so I think that carries over into the family court. But And you already gave the listeners the statistics on what goes to family court. 97% of separating families do not go to court. 85% of litigated family matters involve domestic abuse or sometimes child sexual abuse. Now, in that context, um, you're talking about people who, um, where the families are often at breaking point already, um, and the children so may arrive in court extremely stressed, and you'd be aware of this, and their stress um, or sometimes their silence in the face of someone who they may have seen being domestically violent or may have been the perpetrator of sexual abuse, you know, can be misinterpreted. Um, that's the first thing. That um, Secondly, there's a narrative that goes right back through law that children are unreliable witnesses. Um, I remember when, we not, when I was studying evidence, a very prominent judge um, in a textbook that we were given um, uh, maybe it wasn't one. Oh, yes, a version of the textbook um, talks about how children are sometimes, quote, evil beyond their years. So this sort of idea that children can be mendacious or manipulative, that, that's certainly a narrative in the family court. And But the other thing to say is the mid-'70s reforms we alluded to under the Howard government, that put emphasis, a strong emphasis on judges being guided by the principle that children have a right to regular contact with both parents. Now, this is kind of inver inverting the idea that what should be at the heart of everything is what is in the best interests of children. It's now talking about children's rights to contact with both parents. And that can, I, I, I submit, be turned over sometimes in court to say that the guiding principle is that parents have a right to their children. I think that I think that's what what I've experienced in my clinical work that parents want to assert their rights as though the child is chattel and they are going to share the child, but the responsibility towards the child seems to be another issue. Um, the the other thing, just in relation to what you've just said, in terms of um, that the vast majority of separating parents settle their disputes outside of the court, but that the three percent perhaps who find their way into the courts are often the most vulnerable families affected by domestic abuse, child safety concerns, drug and alcohol abuse, and mental health issues. And we'd have to conclude that an adversarial approach in this context has no place. And you make the point in the book that the law asks the wrong questions of the separating family. What sort of questions do you think they need to ask? You know, well, it seemed very obvious, but I just wondered if you could say a bit more yeah. about that. Well, look, I, I, you know, you, you've hit the nail on the head. The whole problem to me is the adversarial approach, and you will know this in your work. I mean, you've got people who are already in conflict. Some of them are traumatised. To then the adversarial system, and if some of your listeners hopefully are not familiar with it and haven't experienced it, because the one thing you learn when you study law is never go to court. 
It's a system which is set up really, it's a it's an antiquated approach in my view. It's totally not fit for purpose for a range of matters. I mean, it fails um, survivors of sexual assault again and again. It fails survivors of domestic violence. It's about the worst system in, a, in family conflict matters. So, um, you know, if mediation has absolutely failed and mediation should be, you know, mediation using the services of a trained professional like yourself and a trauma-informed mediator, um, you know, that's the first thing that should happen. If that has to fail, then I think an inquisitorial system uh, where you've got a, a, a specialist judge working with expert professionals, trauma-informed professionals, um, where children are brought allowed to speak in a closed court um, and really listen to, and you've got someone like yourself who can interpret signs of stress and trauma so that their evidence isn't tainted by that, by assumptions about what reliability looks like. Um, and I think that we start by asking children, I, th I really go back to the fact that children should be at the heart of this, that financial matters between adults um, are important and sometimes the sort of cases that go to the family court, if, if you've got a, and it's usually a man, I hate to say it, if you've got someone who's abusive, they're often financially abusive, they're, they're out to ruin the woman and often the woman's left as a single parent. Um, those matters are important, but at the heart of it all is we're dealing with families and the family, in my view, starts with children, not with parents. So I think we start by speaking to children and we've got to bring really informed, empathetic exper experts into that space to work with specialist judges it, when everything else fails. I, I would agree. I think what really needs to be at the heart of the matter are the needs of the child rather than the rights of the parents, actually. Well, the rights of the parents really have to revolve around the needs of the child. But the, the needs of the child, certainly in my experience, have been seen as very secondary. I think that sort of what you were saying links in with the uh, John Howard's um, uh, developing the family law amendment of shared parental responsibility and I think we'd all agree that shared care of children by fathers as well as mothers is in the best interest of the children. And But as you say in your book, this concept has become completely misinterpreted as equal clock time. In, in my experience, I've found it's become a degenerated concept, which, as we've discussed, has often led to very bitter parental battles concerning a 50-50 sharing out of the child as a kind of chattel without any consideration of the needs of the or wishes of the child. And I, I think you've actually addressed that in terms of the the nature of the court system, the antiquated nature of the court system and its limitations. The other thing I just want to mention is, again, from my clinical experience, I've observed an overarching belief on the part of the majority of professionals involved in dealing with parents in conflict many mediators, including in the legal and court process, that they see their primary task as having as achieving a shared care agreement between the parents, whatever the cost. And the cost to children is often extremely high. 
And as you explain in your book, children aren't perceived as having any agency of their own, and they seem to exist solely as proxies for the adult agendas. Can you say more about this? How is it that mediators, you know, it's such a very, it was a brilliant idea to have the mediators, and yet they end up, by and large, struggling at all costs to achieve an outcome for the parents, Mm. a sort of shared agreement. Yeah, and I think, well, I'll, I'll come back to exactly that and answer that question. But one of the things that I would say is that anyone with children who's, you know, parented in the nuclear family situation, and I always have a bit of a giggle to myself, is there a reason that it's called the nuclear family? <laughs> is it kind of fission or fusion? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sometimes it goes nuclear. But, I mean, as, as someone with two um, children myself, well, they're not children, young adults, 20 and 22 now, Um, I separated from their father, um, we separated probably seven years ago now, Um, and we did it very amicably. Um, But, you know, if I reflect on what family life was before before that separation, um, as with all families, um, I worked, you know, my husband largely did not uh, work and therefore did a lot of the sort of primary care, which is an unusual situation, but didn't mean I didn't do a lot of primary care too. But what we did, and this is what most parents do, is we sort of balanced things out. It wasn't 50-50. There wasn't a Bundy on, Bundy off system. That's not how families work. And also as children become teenagers, um, they don't want to be shuttled around like a, a, a bag of chattels, as you indicated. Um, what's most important is that they have a connection, and you know, in healthy families, an emotional connection to both parents, and that both parents are flexible and not defensive about whether the young person or the child's spending time. It's where is the child? Where will the child's needs best be served? Um, so, but why? Why has there been a move away from that? What is? What do the kids want? Um, I think this is very rooted in Howard era reforms. I think John Howard and um, others in his government were very swayed by people, including by Pauline Hanson, who's still on this mission to prosecute the idea that um, the family court is anti-men and that it's dominated by feminist thinking. Um, And it goes back to the debates about the Family Law Act and the family court when it was first uh, initiated. And I think that there's a a narrative, I, I would characterize it as a conservative narrative Um, uh, and there are probably some you know beyond that views is still alive and well in our society which elevate men's rights to their children over the safety and emotional well-being of children and women Um, now what I'm saying is political but I this is something I think it's also a fact you know and that's really in a way leads to the you know my next question which is also leading it and all it links in with something that um (laughs) you and uh, Kimberly Nelson have brought up in the book, which is that um, how experts sometimes in wanting to get a shared care outcome at all costs may tend to want to play down abusive and controlling experiences on behalf of one of the partners. Um, So we know that many experts called into these conflictual situations struggle to do their best But you give a horrifying example at one point in the book of how a father's assault on his child was framed as a direct consequence of his upset about being denied his rights. Yeah, and I hate, I mean, there is, 
Well, the the book is full of really distressing accounts. I mean, there are so many of them. I mean, there's one case that's coming to my mind where a um, a, a 12-year-old, I believe she was, was testifying that her father had sexually assaulted her on numerous occasions um, and she was dismissed as manipulative um, and there was an order made in the original judgment for her to go and live with her father, which anyone who knows anything about child sexual abuse, you know, you can only read that with um, deep sadness and horror. But I, so I think the broader discourse here is it's a narrative um, which is rooted in this idea that feminism has gone too far. Yes. Now, I don't know what that means. We headed for Brisbane and we ended up in Darwin. It's unclear to me what gone too far means. But it, it then is linked to this narrative that when men become violent or assert coercive control, they are merely reacting to being put under intolerable stress and having their rights eroded. And I'll just want to give you a quick example here, but sort of historically. I'm from Newcastle. I grew up um, in one side of the family was a deeply working class side of the family and some wonderful people on that side of the family. But my grandfather, who was a painter and docker and a member of the Communist Party and a man of the people and all those good things, um, was also like many, many men in Newcastle, working class men and probably other men, um, domestically violent. And I remember in the 60s and into the 70s witnessing some of that and being very aware that you didn't call the police because the police would see it. It was characterised very openly, not by my parents, I've got to say, but by many people, as women nag men and men go to the pub to deal with the nagging and then they get a bit drunk and they go home and give the wife a bunch of fives. And that was seen as a business between a man and his wife. And I think that we still live with these narratives uh, about uh, that men can be pushed too far. And, I mean, it's even horrifyingly been said in frequently we, we see cases where, you know, there's the um, Jack and Jennifer Ed Edwards case where despite many reports of um, the father being domestically violent, they were ignored. Um, the wife's submissions to the court were ignored. She was characterised as manipulating the children. He was granted access he ended up killing his children. Um, and even when that happened, there were voices out there saying, well, you know, you've got to take into account that he was really under great emotional pressure. So that narrative about domestic violence and child sexual abuse, unfortunately, still is still out there, though hopefully it's not dominant. Yes. I suppose that what one would hope is that there would be justice. Justice could be served in a reasonable way, but also... <clears throat> there would be an understanding of the impact um, on children. I think one of the things yeah. that's sometimes said as a way of excusing the situation, as though you can separate this out, is to say that, um, well, the father attacks the mother, but he doesn't attack the children. Mm -hmm. As though that means that the children are safe because, look, he doesn't actually hit the children. Well, maybe he does. But the, it, it completely um, is the most disorienting weird mm. idea about child and family life as though the children can witness their mother being beaten up and that will have no impact on them and they can say well we're perfectly fine dad you know whereas in fact they are emotionally being destroyed i, I um, could not, not agree more and the, the reason i got early on into advocacy on um uh, rape and domestic violence 
was, as I said, I, I witnessed it not in my immediate family, but um, I remember how traumatic that was. And I have a deep-seated empathy for um, children and young people who are exposed to, to that kind of behaviour. I think, um, yeah, it's ridiculous. It's not as, I mean, as we know, domestic violence does not have to be physical abuse. We know a lot more now, now about coercive control and, I mean, that is in itself, emotional abuse is a form of abuse. And, of course, as you know very well, families are systems. It's not just a group of individuals Absolutely. with walls between them. Absolutely. So, um, and just returning for a moment to the issue of the crippling legal costs, there's mm. a poignant example in your book of a couple who had started out in the legal process with some reasonable assets and they ended up with two expensive watches and some jewellery. And it's a most shocking example. And it makes me, it just brought to mind Charles Dickens's famous book, Bleak House, which is about the interminable court battle between John Dice and John Dice and how the family fortune that they're all desperately trying to get hold of ends up being completely dissipated and disappears entirely through legal fees. And that's the sort of thing that is a, it's an everyday occurrence, isn't it? It is. And and very often um, people can go to, well, there are many instances of people going to court and ending up terribly in debt. So they, they end up having their salaries garnished and so forth. Because unfortunately, there are unscrupulous lawyers. Now, certainly, I, I note that many lawyers are very ethical. But when it comes to people who just don't care, um, they're out there and as they are in any profession and um, they're not going to take account at all of, you know, what position you end up in. Um, if one person's got an appetite for endless litigation, the court will not always um, rule it as vexatious. So you've got very little choice if you're in that situation and you're dealing with children and you're trying to protect them potentially from an abusive um, parent um, so there's, you know, that that is a, a, a huge issue. Um, and it's interesting you raise Bleak House because that brings to mind the fact that the two areas of law, when I speak to my friends who's, who still practice or who are at the bar, um, the two areas they say are just so awful to deal with is wills and estates and family law. And of course, they both involve families. And when there's a death, it's very triggering. And people, some of your listeners, unfortunately, will have experienced this, that, you know, all the um, subtexts that lie beneath the surface of the family will erupt at that point under stress. And it will also happen at family separation. And so, that, again, this is why the adversarial system is the worst thing to throw on top of that. Absolutely. I'm just, there's a, a sort of a final question, but I, I don't want to make that the final question, but just in relation to that, just put it in here, which is this concept of parental alienation, which is mm -hmm. one of the most wicked constructs mm -hmm. imaginable. And it's got, it's, it's wicked in, in two ways. One is that um, it suggests that the mother has mm. deliberately gone ahead and um, set the children against the father. But the mm. other notion, the other thing that is so awful and actually quite wicked is that it suggests that the child has no mind, that there <laughs> is nothing inside the child. The child has no sense of personal agency. They have no mind. They are an empty vessel into which the wicked mother can pour whatever she wishes. 
and and how that can ever become any sort of legal mm. sort of task, how that can ever be taken seriously, absolutely amazes me. Well, I mean, I, I really do think this is rooted in some deep mythology about women um, allied with ideas about children. And it's, um, you know, we have, I think when you look at sort of discourses of protection, and I said that they can mask discourses of control around children, I think there's also this idea that for some people that children are absolutely innocent. So there's you look at them as completely like um, empty pages that, adults write on, you know, which is anyone who understands childhood or even has any memory of being a child would know that's ridiculous, right? And it's not what childhood is. But um, allied with that is the idea that this pure, perfect innocence is unnaturally corruptible. So children can very quickly flip from being completely innocent to highly manipulative or evil, you know. And, yes. and, and, and so that narrative is there around childhood allied with this idea that women um, are manipulative, vengeful, deceitful. Um, you know, when you hear that said about um, when you look at the statistics on sexual assault, it's the least reported crime, it's the least prosecuted crime, it's the least convicted crime. And even though there have been a lot of reforms to the way that um, uh, survivors of sexual assault can be cross-examined in court, um, still there are tactics that are used um but often the suggestion has been and certainly the in public if you look at so social media feeds on high prominent cases there's this idea that women persistently make up sexual assault or they make up domestic violence to get at men to harm a man now we know all the research and all the statistical evidence says that's absolutely not true uh, at all but it is a persistent narrative and it has infected our court system at times yes it's it's very very disturbing. I, I I mean I love the way you talk about the child is is it's a series of empty pages on which parents can write whatever they want. You know it's a, it's a terrific sort of image. <laughs> Anyone who's been a parent knows that's a fallacy. I mean one of I actually love children. I particularly enjoy talking to kids on the street, or I love having um, relatives with little kids or friends with little kids over because children will if you give them space, as you know, they will tell you what they think. And they're hilarious when they do. Yeah. I mean, they're very amusing and they're asking the right questions about the world, right, the questions that grown-ups often forget to keep asking. Yeah. Yes. Um, so, you know, the idea that children are just tabula rasas is ludicrous. Yes, absolutely. And um, we've talked a bit about the um, adversarial legal court system being really not, it's not fit for purpose, I think is the mm. best way to put it. Um, and as you described, that that it, it's filled with the stark binaries of good, bad, guilty, and innocent, and doesn't cannot service or support the complexity of human relationships, which are often seen at their worst. But I wonder if I can ask you just a final question, which is that you and Camilla in the book refer to the need to understand family law as a system for the health and well-being of children, and I so totally agree with that. What sort of changes would you like to see in the family um, law system that would be able to promote that, the health and well-being of children? Yeah. So I'm mean, using that word family system because, um, you know, having as a complete amateur looked at various forms of family therapy, I mean, I was very attracted 
to any sort of approach that sees the family as a system. And I think, you know, um, it's interesting what you began by saying about, you know, quick fix approaches or sort of, I suppose, even individualistic approaches miss how we are formed and framed within families and which really sets us up for life in many ways. And um, so, yes, so the first thing is, um, I mean, I think I've already talked um, in institutional terms about um, a shift to an inquisitorial system, but save for only the hardest, most least resolvable cases, I actually think a system that takes the emphasis with when it comes to children and custody issues and things, takes the emphasis right off the legal system and moves it much more into the domain of professionals like yourself, working with an informed legal professional, but um, moves right away from that idea that because the legal system, as we just discussed, sees things in terms of rights, um, but probably not so much in terms of responsibilities. Absolutely, and, yes. And, and that's that's where um, professionals like yourself think about the, the family in a holistic way and think about the well-being and safety of children and listens, listen to children, that's your job, and um, I think the legal... Um, framing of that should be just allied and I think it should be rele relegated to second place myself. Absolutely. Would there be, well, are there people in the legal world who would be sympathetic to that view? I, I'm sure that there are. Hmm. Um, and I think I th this is the thing, even though perhaps this book appears to be a bit hard on the legal system and on certainly on some of the judgments, um, what what is not in the book, because that's not what the book was about, uh, is is the fact that there are many people working in the system who are really under-resourced and are working in the best in interests of children, but who, when I've talked to them just, you know, in social situations, people who work in th this area, um, they're, they're despairing. And, they're, they're, and they also say, look, so much, it's a rush, it's a roulette system when what judge you get, and they'll all know I'm oh, not that judge. And, um, you know, so that's part of, the problem oh. whereas you know what we need is real expertise and the expertise we really need are people who have your kind of professional background who understand how to work with families even families in conflict and put children front and center yes well i don't know if, that, if that's ever going to happen but it's certainly a hope but um catherine thank you so much for you know tremendous words of wisdom and 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 describing so well all the, the these terribly complex situations and and I think so very important and and I hope very much that it will be able to create even some small change yeah and Ruth it's a delight talking to you thank you very much for having me Hello, this is Dr. Ruth Schmidt-Nevin again. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. You may be interested to know about my audio trainings based on the many trainings I have run throughout Australia and overseas. These include training on relationships, attachment and the brain, time-limited psychodynamic psychotherapy and skill building in therapeutic work. You can access the details of all my trainings on my website, which is at www 
centerforchildandfamily.com. That's A-N-D, so www.centerforchildandfamily.com. Thank you.